Roz is going to bring uh, our Bible reading for us this morning in Daniel chapter 2. Please open your Bibles to that. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of the blue ones uh, in uh, the pews. And if you do not have a Bible, please feel free to take that home as our gift to you. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honour. Therefore show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guards, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, 
and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold altogether were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke the, in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honours and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Well, uh, this morning, uh, Roz just read out to us all of chapter 2. But this morning, we're going to focus on uh, verses 1 to 30. Uh, but I think it's great. Well, we read the whole chapter for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's excellent to just have the Word of God read out in our gatherings. But secondly, the things that we will look at and focus on in the first 30 verses of chapter 2 this morning are things that you, you'll notice in the second half uh, there's a lot of uh, interaction between the, the two sections. So uh, that's why we did that. So be prepared to hear the whole of chapter 2 read out again next week uh, when we look at the second half of the chapter. Well, let me begin by asking you this morning, have you ever had a sleepless night? Uh, or have you even had perhaps just a few hours of sleep that you didn't have? And tell me, what if, if that is true of you, uh, you have had that and have experienced that, what was the cause? 
And I'm not talking about the fact that you stayed up till 3 a.m. watching movie trailers, like I have been known to do. When I say the cause, well, I mean that, yeah, that is one possibility and one cause. But I'm talking about other things. How did you deal with, perhaps, what were the things that were running through your mind that kept you awake? Oh, you have... Ah, because I was talking to the rooms because they were having a sleepover. That's one reason why my daughter was kept awake one time. Well, our passage this morning deals with uh, such a sleepless night. From the king of Babylon, of course, King Nebuchadnezzar, the very ruler who, as we saw last week, took captive many Israelites, brought them to Babylon in, and uh, exiled them there, where some of them, including Daniel and his friends, uh, were re-educated in Babylonian ways. This morning, we're simply going to walk through the passage uh, rather than giving you some points or some headings. So uh, let me encourage you to have Daniel 2 open and to take notes as we go through, if you can. And before we begin on that journey, how about I pray? Heavenly Father, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation, meditations of my heart and our hearts be pleasing to you. Lord, you are the one who reveals mysteries. May you open our eyes as we look into your word this morning. And may you open our hearts to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so kids, you guys are in with us again this morning. Can you tell me, anyone remember what happened last week in Daniel chapter 1? Anybody? Actually, it was only my kids and you guys, hey, <laughs> last week. No? Well, let me remind you, last week, in our first chapter, uh, Daniel, as I mentioned before, his friends were taken into uh, the king's court, and they were re-educated to learn Babylonian ways, and then they asked if they could just have vegetables and water, and God miraculously provided for them so that they ended up being better than everybody else who were eating the king's normal diet of meat and wine and whatever else Babylonians ate. Uh, and the king and others saw that, that Daniel and his three friends were uh, better and wiser than all of the other wise men in all of the kingdom. And that's where the end of chapter 1 finished off for us. And so after this first chapter, here we are in chapter 2. It doesn't take very long for Daniel and his friends to be thrust into the heart of the action in the Babylonian kingdom. Well, it, it doesn't take long in our story. It is literally the end of chapter 1 and then next chapter but as verse 1 tells us, this is a year or two after them actually arriving in Babylon as, exile, as exiles. We are a couple of years into their time there. The second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, according to the Babylonian dating system, is roughly around 602-603 BC. So Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they have been in this re-education camp under King Nebuchadnezzar for a little while now. And given the fact that we know that God has given them wisdom which far outstrips the other magicians and the Chaldeans in Babylon, it makes you wonder, how are we going to see that wisdom on display? Well, the king provides for us the very opportunity which will set into motion the events of this chapter. And in these, we're going to see how God works and how he works through these young men. So Nebuchadnezzar had some bad dreams and it's possible that by saying dreams, he's referring to one that was recurring over and over. He had it several times, night after night. And whether it was that or whether it was just, uh, uh, just referring to some of them and this one in particular, the end result was his spirit was troubled. He had insomnia. He was unable to sleep. And so, as I asked at the beginning, if you've ever had trouble sleeping, you know what this feels like. Now, sometimes we can't sleep because we're too excited. Kids, have any of you had that before? Unable to sleep because you're too excited? Yeah, there's a couple of nods over there. But for me, I, the, the event in my mind where this sticks out is when I was in year eight and I was about to go on a European handball competition trip interstate and it took me hours to get back to sleep. 
I couldn't, I was just like, I was like, what's going on? Why can't I say it? I realized I was just excited. But sometimes, and perhaps more often than when we're excited, we can't sleep because we're anxious, because we're worried. The concerns about the future, they grip our minds and our hearts, and the anxiety of the unknown, of things that perhaps we're thinking about that we, we don't know how it's going to turn out, that keeps us up at night. What are some of the anxieties that sometimes keep you up at night? What are some of the worries that perhaps take over your brain and arrest your heart and make it difficult for you to rest? For Nebuchadnezzar, this dream was a matter of significant concern. And this isn't just because of the content of the dream, which, as we heard, read, would be concerning, even if you didn't know what it meant. But it carried even more weight for him because in the ancient world, dreams were considered to be messages from the gods. And for a king especially, who is the number one target of other nations, of other kings, and even those within his court who are conspiring against him, it's not hard to imagine why someone in his position would be worried about what this dream might mean. What are the gods trying to tell me? What is this uh, a portent of? And so Nebuchadnezzar does what any other king would have done. He calls in the experts. He calls in the ones who have been trained in oniromancy. Oniromancy. I don't really know how you'd pronounce that as an Australian. And that is the study of dream interpretation, especially what the dream actually means for the future. The magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, these, these guys would have spent years devouring books and practicing this art. And as I mentioned last week, the Israelite reading this in 6th century BC would immediately recognize shadows of a former faithful Israelite who had the ability to interpret dreams. After all, kids, can you think of who I'm perhaps talking about here? Somebody who was faithful as a follower of God, who was able to interpret dreams, was even called into the king's court to interpret them. Oh, this is Daniel that we're talking about, yeah, but another one even earlier than Daniel. I'll give you a clue. He was the son of Jacob. Joseph. Well, oh, yeah, that's all right. Well done. Joseph, that's right. So when Pharaoh had a dream that troubled his spirit, he also called in the magicians of Egypt, the wise men in all of Egypt. For the Israelite reading this, that would have been an unmistakable connection. Now, I won't point out all of the parallels in our chapter this morning that connect to Joseph, but this chapter, chapter 2 in particular, really shows how Joseph is a type of Daniel. And so you can understand why both Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar called on these guys. These guys are the pros. If anyone can tell you what the dream meant, it's going to be them. At least that's what he hoped that they would be able to do. And they were pretty confident themselves that they would be able to do that, having trained in it for years, read all the books on Aniramansi. But they were about to be in for a rude shock. As the magicians and the wise men and Chaldeans came into the king's court and stood before Nebuchadnezzar, he stated to them his, uh, his business in verse 3. I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Now some say that because he says he's troubled and he wants to know the dream, that he has possibly forgotten it. And that's why he, you know, he, he needs the proof. But given his response to the Chaldeans and his insistence that their so-called knowledge must be verified with accuracy, I think it's actually more likely that he is testing them. Nebuchadnezzar wants proof that their interpretation of the dream really is supernatural and not just something that they're making up. He wants to be sure that it really is 
from the one who gave him the dream. That the meaning of it is, is really the meaning of it. You might remember from last week that the term Chaldeans could refer to astrologers or others who were trained in this kind of thing. Well, they confidently reply to the king. O king, tell us the dream and we will show you the interpretation. And that little note there, by the way, of saying that they replied to him in Aramaic, that's not actually just a note referring to their reply, but it's actually about the rest of the text itself. So from this point on until the end of chapter 7 in the book of Daniel, it is written in Aramaic. And Aramaic, if you're unfamiliar, is a language similar to Hebrew. It's basically a dialect of Hebrew, but it has, uh, was used more broadly in that part of the world at that time. And there's some significance in that, because chapter 7 parallels this chapter in its content and its setting. But we're going to cross that dream bridge when we'll come to it. For now, the king is not terribly happy about their response. The word from me is firm, he says. I asked you to tell me the dream. You know what I've asked. My request is firm. Well, it's not a request. (laughs) My command is firm. If you can't, you're going to be torn limb from limb and everything you own will be destroyed. But hey, on the bright side, if you can tell me what it is, then you'll be showered with gifts and great honor. Aren't you glad that you don't live in an era where the king can do whatever he likes, regardless of whether it is reasonable or not? And yet it's interesting, isn't it, speaking of eras... We in our post-enlightenment modern world, we don't necessarily think of dreams as coming from the gods, yet the same forces that perhaps contributed to Nebuchadnezzar's anxiety and to his sleepless nights, they are the same that lead to ours, are they not? Sure, you and I might not have neighboring kingdoms wanting uh, to get revenge on us for conquering them or beating them in battle. But Nebuchadnezzar's concern about the future and how the rest of his life is is, is one that most, if not all of us, can relate to. Can you relate to that? Concerns, anxieties about what will happen? Let me ask you this morning, who do you call upon to help you deal with your anxieties about the future? When it keeps you up at night, or perhaps when it makes you unable to focus on anything else during the day? Do you turn to your modern day Chaldeans? How do you read the signs of the times? It's so fascinating to me that astrology persists today. Uh, The the false gods behind these forces of the universe, they have shape-shifted over the years, but the fundamental pieces remain the same. They're still claiming that they can reveal hidden mysteries still claiming that they can reveal what is going to happen in the future. And even though, brothers and sisters, you you might not open a newspaper and go to the astrology section. I mean, you, you probably don't open newspapers anyway. But back in the day, there used to be newspapers with astrology sections that you could turn to. And even though you might not do that, as somebody who follows Christ, let me ask you, how often do you seek the counsel of others over the revelation of God's Word to seek answers for your anxieties? How often do you turn to these other sources, seeking something that may comfort or ease your mind? And let me ask you, would you be content with what God reveals as a response and answer to your worries? even if it doesn't give you the fullest answer that you would like. Recognize 
something, brothers and sisters. God is under no obligation to reveal to us how our lives are going to play out. And at any rate, He knows that doing that will not ultimately grant us the rest from our anxiety that we seek. Simply knowing the future is not of greatest comfort. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gives the Chaldeans their orders. It's either going to go really, really, really well for them or really, really, really badly. And you can sense the tension just getting thicker and thicker here in the king's court. Imagine standing there in that moment experiencing this exchange. And so what was initially the king's anxiety is now, I think, becoming the Chaldeans' anxiety. So they try the same line again. Uh, Tell us the dream, O king. We will show you its interpretation. You can already hear them thinking to themselves, uh, they never covered this in our basic aneuromancy training. Did I miss the page in the book that told us how you're supposed to know the dream and then interpret it? Where did that come from? You see, Nebuchadnezzar, he knows that they can't do it. This response is, is once again uh, confirming for him the suspicions that he has about these guys. Look at verse 8. I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. You guys, are, you're trying to delay and twist my arm and, and try to make me reveal the dream. But how can I know that your interpretation will be correct if I just tell you the dream? You, if I give you the content, then you can give me whatever interpretation you like. And maybe you will pronounce the end of my reign as king. Maybe you're going to sow seeds of doubt into the people in my court and make them think that they can overtake me and usurp the throne. And given what the dream is, maybe you're going to say, that this, is, this is it, this is going to be the end. No, I'm, I'm not letting that happen. I'm not letting that happen. I can see that you are, you are agreeing amongst yourselves. You're conspiring against me, as the NIV would say. You're lying and your corrupt words, they're going to be able to spin my dream into whatever you want it to be, into whatever you think might save your skin. No. The word from me is firm. You tell me the dream. And then I will know for sure that your interpretation is correct. Now, whether Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit unhinged or not, I think this gives us a bit of a window into the kind of insecurity and anxiety about the future that came with being the king. Nebuchadnezzar himself was a great conqueror, he, and he you know, managed to uh, uh, wage many successful war campaigns, made himself a lot of enemies. And to, to be honest, he assesses the Chaldeans correctly. They had no real power to reveal great mysteries. That's, that's just as true back then as it is today. When you read astrology sections or you hear the predictions of mediums or other practitioners, more often than not, you're going to find that the words are so vague that they could apply to 75% of the population. And even if they didn't, if the, if you, as long as you cast the net wide enough, surely it's going to apply to somebody, right? And the Chaldeans, modern-day astrologers, and everyone in between, they are in the same boat. Only God knows, and only God determines the future. Listen to Isaiah 46. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Bel and Nebo, these are two main Babylonian gods. Isaiah makes it clear that they are useless, that they cannot save the burden. But who can? Verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 46 tell us, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning 
And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Kids, do any of you know a song on that verse? Zai? Oh, Mia. Can you sing it for me? No? <laughs> there was a hand, and now there is hesitation. Are there any adults that know the song that I'm referring to in particular? Mia's mother. Yes. Can you sing it for us? I am God, and there is no other. Yeah, that's one. If you don't know it, look it up. It's worthwhile. I am God, and there is no other. There is no other. Bell and Nebo, all of these other fake gods, all of these other claims about the universe and whatever else, it's all false. They have no power. Only God knows and can reveal all things, including the future. Now, here is one way, brothers and sisters, to assess whether you are going to the Lord or to the Chaldeans for counsel. How do you determine whether the counsel that you receive for the anxieties that you are worried about is good for you or not? What are the criteria to decide whether the, the counsel, the advice you have received is good or not? If it makes you feel better? And if it makes you feel better, does it matter to you if it is true or not? You see, the Bible overwhelmingly warns more about false prophets and teachers than it does about outside bad influences. When you hear the false teaching of false prophets, are you discerning about what they say? You see where I'm getting at? You, you know, the, yes, you need to be concerned about listening to an atheist or a Buddhist or whatever about what they might tell you in terms of how to deal with this. But those who claim to be Christians and the advice that they give you with regard to your concerns, are you discerning as you listen to what they say? You see, more than once I've heard Christians defend false teachers on the basis of the good things they do. Oh, they're not that bad because they do all these other great things. As though you can turn a blind eye to, to the lies that they say because, you know, people are being helped. They're feeling better about life. They're happier. Sadly, sometimes it is the unbelievers, it is the Nebuchadnezzars of the world that are able to spot false prophets more readily and more accurately than Christians. Brothers and sisters, continue to discern the truth and assess the teachers. Assess those with whom, from whom you receive counsel by the word of God. Well, this next scene is one of my favorites. As the tension reaches its boiling point and the Chaldeans realize that they are about to be sent off, to be dismembered, they finally admit to their limitations. First, they, they make what seems to be... A, a reasonable observation. No great and powerful king has ever asked this before, including Nebuchadnezzar, of course. But verse 11 is my favorite. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. When pushed to the limit, these Chaldeans, they actually speak the truth. No one can show it to the king except the gods. Well, perhaps it's too generous to say that they spoke the truth. They, not the whole truth, but they got very, very, very near to it. When they were pushed, threatened with, uh, with execution, they stopped hiding behind all the other things. They actually spoke very near the truth. Only God can do what the king has asked. As we saw in Isaiah 46, only the true God of heaven declares the beginning and the end. Only he knows the deepest mysteries that are impenetrable for human beings. 
Now, as, as human beings, we've been able to and we continue to unearth some incredible mysteries in this world and in this life. I heard just this week that a team of scientists in Melbourne is planning to bring back the Tasmanian tiger in the next decade. That's pretty incredible and kind of terrifying in my mind. It's taken some incredible uh, knowledge, wisdom from scientists and researchers to be able to get to that point. But even if you are high on humanity and even if you are optimistic about all the wonderful things that we are capable of knowing and discovering and doing, it doesn't take long to realize that we still have significant limitations. We are not God. And we know we're not. Despite all of our advancement, despite all of our technological uh, progress, religion stubbornly persists. Why? Here's how Bible commentator G.L. Archer puts it. Even the cleverest minds will never understand certain areas of mystery and foreknowledge, namely the deep and hidden things, and that which lies in darkness. You see, whatever knowledge that we have as people, it comes from Him. He is the one who gives it. He is the one who reveals it. No matter how smart you are, even if you have a four-digit IQ, you still won't know everything. And especially the things of the future. The Chaldeans are simply admitting this fact. And they've realized that they've run out of options and it's time to try and save their necks. But Nebuchadnezzar, he reacts by flying into a rage and commanding that all of the wise men in the entire kingdom be killed. Sadly, this was not uncommon for kings drunk on power to command or to wipe out large groups of people. King Saul himself uh, almost does this in 1 Samuel 22. And as Nebuchadnezzar's minions go out to execute his orders, Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, he comes to Daniel and his friends in order to put them to death. Now, why they weren't included in the original group who were summoned to the king's court, it's unclear in the narrative. Perhaps it was because they weren't quite ready to be part of that group yet, hadn't finished their training. Or perhaps Nebuchadnezzar had his own kind of special top class of Chaldeans that he always went to in things like this. Whatever the case, it provides an opportunity for Daniel to ask Arioch what is going on. And in the next couple of verses, we see how Daniel's response is one that is worth copying. He replies with prudence and discretion to Arioch. We saw last week how Daniel showed prudence and discretion in the hills that he chose to die on, but also in the way that he chose to do that. He does the same here, and again, he gives us a good example. Let me ask, when under pressure, and even in the face of death, does your confidence and your trust in the sovereign God help you act with prudence and with discretion? So often we uh, panic in such circumstances, yet Daniel didn't. But instead, he went and he spoke to Arioch, and then he got himself an appointment with the king. Can you imagine how he must have been feeling at this point? Just place yourself in Daniel's shoes for a moment. He is literally staring death in the face. And the lives of who knows how many magicians and Chaldeans are relying on his ability to be able to tell the king what his dream was and what it means. But you see, Daniel not only knew, like the Chaldeans, that these impenetrable mysteries cannot be known by mortal human beings, unlike them, he knew that only the God of heaven could reveal them. And when it's us against God, 
We don't get to dictate what he chooses to reveal and what he doesn't. We are not the ones in the driving seat. And so we must cry out for mercy. And that's exactly what Daniel does. Have a look at verse 17. Daniel went to his house, made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Daniel, along with his friends, seek mercy. They recognize that the fate of their lives lay in the hands of God. Yes, it is the king who was to be the instrument of their potential execution, of their judgment. But they knew the king of kings, the one who was above this king, the one who was able to reveal this mystery, the one whose days was known to them, him. And bring about the rescue of Daniel, bring about his companions and the rest of wise men, of the wise men in Babylon to salvation. Brothers and sisters, is this how you see God? Do you approach him with the matters of your life that you are worried about, the anxieties of life and its deepest mysteries, especially ones concerning the future? And do you ask for his mercy? Or are you more likely to demand an answer as though you were entitled to it, as the king did? You see, the follower of Christ always approaches the throne and stands before the king with humility. We recognize that he is the God of heaven. He is the Lord of hosts in whose presence we stand. And tell me, do you ask for your brothers and sisters to pray with you? How readily do you ask for prayer? This is something I've been challenged with even as I've prepared this sermon. Preparing to preach is quite a burdensome task and I was reminded this week how I don't ask for your prayers enough in my preparation and in my preaching. And frankly, just generally. I send it out in the weekly email but I don't do this enough. When was the last time you asked a brother or sister in Christ to seek God's mercy for, with you for something that was troubling you? It's too easy to walk alone. Our culture encourages it. Our sin wants it. Our habits solidify it. Brothers and sisters, this is what your church family is for. Perhaps even consider, as I mentioned at the beginning, we have so many away this morning who are in isolation, who are sick. Have you offered to pray with them? When you're in that situation, will you ask? Let me remind you of the people that God has given you in this moment, in this time, in this place to cry out to Him with. Do not be afraid to ask them to stand with you in petitioning the King of Kings for mercy. And recognize that one of the purposes of Daniel's prayer is the same as one of the purposes for our prayer. That is the salvation of our neighbors from judgment. We see here, and even more clearly in verse 24, that Daniel is wanting to save the lives of the other wise men. Is there a longing in your heart to see your friends, to see your loved ones, to see your neighbors saved from the pure wrath of God, from His coming judgment? Do you cry out to God for mercy on them? God had mercy on Daniel, and he had mercy on the wise men by revealing this mystery to them. And that revelation was key 
to the saving of all their lives. I love how the narrative in verse 19, just so matter-of-factly, says that the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. You know, unlike other times where the Bible describes the very conversation that somebody has with God, with his prophets, and the very words that are exchanged. No, here in Daniel, we are simply told that the mystery was revealed by God, assumably. And Daniel doesn't figure it out. He, regardless of how wise or intelligent he might be, this is not knowledge that is gained through natural means. That's why it says it was given to him. Sorry, it was revealed to him. It was given. And this is why we call it revelation. We can only know things that are hidden when they are revealed. And this is also why theologians of the past have talked about two categories of revelation. General revelation and special revelation. You may have heard those terms before. General revelation is that which can be seen and understood about God by simply observing the universe around us. Things that God has placed in creation and placed in us which point to the truth about God and point to God. These are the things that you can know and figure out using your head. Special revelation, on the other hand... That is, things that God has revealed to us which we otherwise would not know. Things that we could not figure out just by observing the world around us. This includes the things God spoke through His prophets and apostles that were written down in the Bible, as well as Jesus Himself coming to reveal the Father and reveal His gospel. These are things that we would not know and things that we could not know if God had not revealed them to us. If you want to see a great juxtaposition of this, if you're taking notes, check out Psalm 19. The first six verses talk about God's revelation in creation, His general revelation, and verses 7 to 11 talk about His special revelation, which is found in His Word. The mystery that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar in the dream and its interpretation they live in this second category of special revelation. And in God revealing this to Nebuchadnezzar, it is an act of mercy. You see, God doesn't have to reveal those things to us. He is not obliged to, and yet He does. You can understand why Daniel breaks out in praise and blesses the God of heaven in verse 20. <clears throat> Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He said, right from the beginning of this prayer, Daniel recognizes who it is that he worships. He recognizes that this is the eternal God of heaven, the one who is all-powerful and all-wise. Wisdom and might belong to Him. Or as Paul would say in Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. This is the posture of the one who worships God. We readily and unashamedly recognize that all comes from Him and all is about Him. From Him, through Him, to Him. And not only that, but He changes times and seasons. A phrase again that Paul will pick up on in his letters to the Thessalonians. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and he gives knowledge to those who have understanding. Do you notice what Daniel is declaring here? Do you notice what he is proclaiming about God? He's continuing on with the same theme. God is in control of time and he is in control of the seasons. All the, all the kings that come and go. All the kings that have come and gone and will come and go. They all do so because he is the one who places them on the throne, and He is the one who removes them. And not only does He do that, even the wisdom with which a person can learn more things and discover truth about God, all of that is given by Him. Do you notice how in verse 22, Daniel picks up uh, 
No, sorry, it's later on. I'll come back to that. In this, in this final leg of his description of God, Daniel gets to the core of what God has just done for him. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in him. With my parents up over the last few weeks, we have Austin sleeping with us in our room at the moment. So it means that at nighttime, uh, when I want to go and get my clothes from our room so that I can have a shower, uh, I don't want to disturb him, and therefore I don't want to turn on the lights. And you'd think that this would be a simple task because I already know where my clothes are. Yet it's amazing how long uh, I've spent trying to find the right clothes in the dark. I don't know if you've ever tried this, but it is an interesting thing because you think to yourself, I know where it all is. Surely I can just reach in and grab something. Nope, grabbing something else. And it's amazing how quickly that task is completed if I turn on even just a little light. How much more when you have the light of the sun? And as Christians, how much more in this life when you have the light of the sun? You see, this is crucial for us to grasp. God does not just give us information. When He reveals truth to us, He doesn't just tell us a bunch of things that bring us out of the dark ages, so to speak, and into the light. No, He gives us the light of the world. As John 1 would reveal to us, the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And yet, How often do we go around groping in the dark instead of turning to the light? How often do you seek answers to your anxieties in the dark? In places that have nothing to do with God. In places that don't want anything to do with Him. Brothers and sisters, let us... Instead, encourage one another with the words of Daniel. Do you praise God this way? Do you recognize that in Jesus, the light of the world has come and in him, we are brought out of the darkness? Whoever follows him, as Jesus says in John 8, will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When we consider the light and life that we have in Christ and the lack of joy and praise and thanks that is so often characteristic of our lives, that is a sign that we do not see and we do not savor God the way we have seen Daniel do in these few verses. When we sing at church, when you listen to songs at home, when you read passages and songs of praise in Scripture, where is your mind? Where is your heart? I know that this is hard and can seem mundane and become so routine, but the wonder is gone. And we can get so used to the the, the patterns and the ways that we think and act and respond to these things that we forget to go to God and to His Word. But brothers and sisters, the problem is not in the revelation that God has given to us. The problem is not that God no longer reveals prophet-level details of the next four kingdoms of this world or however long we're going to live for. It's not that his revelation has grown stale and that we need fresh revelation. The problem is that we fail to wonder at the things that God has revealed. We grow tired, we grow accustomed, we are used to them. And we think they no longer have any relevance to our particular situation. 
Or sometimes we fail to even know what God has revealed. Because we don't read it. We don't go to it. How can you expect to see what you're, what you're going? Uh, how can you expect to see where you're going or find what it is that you're looking for if the word is not a lamp to your feet and a light to your path? May God in his mercy move our hearts to the same kind of response that Daniel has every single day of our lives. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Notice how Daniel here earlier, he earlier spoke of God's wisdom and might, and now here he praises him for the wisdom and might that God has given him. This is why as Christians we love to praise God for saving us. And this is why Scripture constantly reminds us not to boast in ourselves. We don't pat ourselves on the back because we watched a bunch of apologetics videos and then debates with atheists before we finally decided to become Christians. Aren't I great now that I've come to Jesus? No. We recognize that the understanding that we have received of God's truth has come because of His mercy. In the same way that God made known this mystery to Daniel, it is him who has made known and who continues to make known to us the mystery of Christ. And for that, we give him praise. Well, after praising God with this prayer of praise, Daniel reports to Arioch that he has the interpretation that the king is after. And here is another ironic twist in the characters of this story. Daniel has shown all along what somebody who knows God and who knows his place before God does. Arioch here embodies our sinful instincts. In the interactions between these two, we've seen that Daniel is the one who has taken the initiative to go to talk to Arioch. Yet what do we see in verse 25? Arioch takes the credit. Uh, I found somebody who can give you the interpretation. Now be honest, friends. Who are you more likely to be like? Brothers and sisters, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, the king is intrigued. And do you notice how both Arioch and Nebuchadnezzar are focused on Daniel and not his God? Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? That emphasis largely remains throughout the rest of the chapter. At the end of chapter 2, we'll see that, that Nebuchadnezzar likes to give Daniel all the credit. And even after Daniel gives the interpretation and all the things that he has to say about God. But Daniel, he is well grounded in what he knows to be true. Even though he is saving their lives, Daniel calls out the falsehoods of the magicians and the astrologers. No one, he says, no human being can show to the king the mystery that he has asked. And notice how Daniel here reiterates what all the other Chaldeans said before. I wonder, personally, if the king just had, had a little moment of almost rage as those words came out of Daniel's mouth. I, you said... But in verse 28, there's the key difference between what the Chaldeans and what Daniel said. Kids, can you tell me the difference between what the astrologers said and what Daniel said. I'll give you a hint. It's on the screen and I've underlined it. Yeah, that's right. There is a God in heaven as opposed to the gods that the Chaldeans talked about. Daniel knows the God who reveals mysteries. And Daniel knows and is confident in the fact that he has revealed the meaning of the dream to the king. 
Interestingly, you would expect that what comes after this verse is an explanation of the very dream and its meaning of it, right? But no, in verse 29, Daniel basically just states the same thing again, (laughs) emphasizing the point that God gave him this dream in order to reveal to him what would happen in the future. He reiterates it again in verse 30, where he says that God revealed this so that the king would know the thoughts of his own mind. As I said before, God has rarely revealed the specific future of a person to them. If God has done that for you, I'd be interested to hear it. But I have yet to meet a person where that is the case. But it is still true that God gives all of us His revelation so that we may know our own minds. After all, it's His revelation that shows us our sinfulness and our need for Him. It's His revelation that tells us that only Christ can wash away our sin. It's His revelation that gives us assurance in a future with Him, regardless of what that looks like in this life. It's His revelation that tells us that the greatest mystery that He has revealed to us is that of Christ, who is the only one who can bring us the rest from the anxiety that we have. In the final verse of our passage, Daniel takes no credit at all, unlike Arioch. He even goes out of his way to point out that this had nothing to do with his wisdom or his ability, the very thing that put him on the map at the end of chapter 1. And perhaps he was emphasizing the fact that his years of reinstruction in those Babylonian re-education camps did not suddenly give him this ability. Whatever the case, he makes the purpose clear as crystal. This is not so that he can boast, but so that the king might know the meaning of the dream and know the thoughts of his own mind. God graciously gives him what he's after. But what Nebuchadnezzar must grasp is that ultimately... True rest will not come with just knowing his future. True rest comes in trusting in the God of heaven who is able to save us from our burden. And this is just as crucial for us to grasp today. Brothers and sisters, who will you turn to for peace and deliverance from your anxious thoughts. When fretting about the future keeps you up at night, where will you find rest? Joseph acknowledged before Pharaoh that it was not in him that Pharaoh's dream could be interpreted but that only God, only God could give it. Daniel also, as we have seen over and over again, emphasized that the ability to reveal mystery was not in him, but in God. And both Joseph and Daniel would be shadows of the one who would come, the light of the world who gives life to his people, who reveals to us the Father and His will. Let me read to you from Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
You see, the Chaldeans thought that the gods did not dwell among his people. Yet Jesus did. And he continues to in his spirit. Jesus here reminds us of the same truth that Daniel proclaimed in this chapter. It is by God's mercy that he reveals his truth and his will to us. You see, in order to follow Christ, you don't have to be the smartest or the wisest person around. You don't have to be a king or someone who stands out from the crowd. You don't have to be beautiful according to the world's standards. You simply need to be one who humbles themselves and one who seeks him for mercy. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We all labor and are heavy laden with the burden of our sin, with selfish desires, with anxieties about the unknown, with worries about the future, with misplaced trust in false prophets and in inferior wisdom, with hearts that would prefer to boast and glory in ourselves rather than in God. He has mercifully revealed to you the one who will give you rest from your burden. The one who reveals the Father and His will. The one whose good news is that of light in the darkness. Of salvation from certain judgment and death. Of life everlasting. Will you bring your burden to him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are weary, weary pilgrims burdened by our sin and burdened by our perpetual turning to things other than you to wisdom that does not come from you. Father, forgive us of that. And Lord, by your Spirit, turn our hearts and our eyes to you, to your revelation, to your Son, who has revealed to us your truth, your love, your grace and who takes on our burden gladly when we humbly surrender to you and seek your mercy. Father, do that in each of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.